Uh, this past Friday, uh, many of you know, the United States Supreme Judicial Court legalized same-sex marriage. And uh, this week, I'll be sending out a broadcast email, which uh, I hope gives a little bit more texture to my reflections of this moment. And I hope it'll be helpful to you, but let me just say a couple words before my message this morning. I also would like to point you to a couple resources. If you've been a part of our congregation, you know that in this matter, there is clarity. Uh, let's keep in mind, uh, if we would, all of us, just because five Supreme Court justices say something is now legal, this does not make it morally right. Legal legitimacy is not the same as moral legitimacy, and may we be discerning in the times in which we live. Our God is a sovereign God, and his ultimate will will prevail. If you've been with us during our Corinthian series, we have spent a lot of time unpacking this matter of human sexuality and what the Bible clearly teaches about it from Genesis to Revelation. It is not ambiguous, it is not confusing, it is compellingly clear. And I gave a sermon in March, March 1, 2015. The name of the sermon was entitled, So Were We, Part Two. And if you've not heard it, I encourage you, if that's helpful, for you to listen to it. We also have an extensive paper we have written entitled Exploring God's Design for Human Sexuality, which is available to you on our church website. We do live in very confusing and deceptive and troubled times, don't we? Our minds and hearts are reeling in many ways. The last few weeks, as we've seen the horrific evil unleashed around the world and certainly in Charleston last week, the manifest presence of evil and the brokenness of our world seems to be crowding in on us with more frequency and intensity these days. And across our land, I find people of faith and yes, some people of non-faith asking this question, is there a solution to the unraveling of our world? Recently, I was in Chicago and a business friend of mine who is an executive who travels globally uh, we had a wonderful lunch together, and I asked him, how is your work going? How's your global company going? And he looked at me, and I know him well over the years, and he paused with his eyes looking down, and he said these words, Tom, the world is spinning out of control like a top with ever-increasing speed. I see it everywhere I go. In other words, we live in a time, don't we, that is fast-changing, and a time that is very troubled. And it seems to me as I look across our landscape, landscape, the energy of our society and our nation, that we are battling a collective plight that if most people are honest, is way beyond us. And the question for us, is anything working? And what about all the individual brokenness all of us feel, all of us face, the dark shadows in our own souls, the gnawing doubts in our lives, the tenacious idols we cling to, and the destructive habits we embrace. And the question is, can we be delivered from this mess? Is it possible to find a buoyant faith in the midst of such broken lives and such a broken world that is moving at dizzying speed? I don't think it's incidental or accidental in God's sovereignty for the next seven weeks, we are exploring an Old Testament book of Exodus that speaks into our moment. As we trace the faith journey of Moses in a series we have entitled us appropriately, I think, in this moment, Deliver Us, God. Deliver Us. It's our hope that each one of us might find a more buoyant faith as a teaching team 
And before I begin this morning's message, let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, we are reminded daily and this week of the troubled and confusing and deceptive times we live in. And in our idolatry of self, we as a people are abandoning your will and your ways with recklessness. We pray for your true church, that she would be faithful, humble, loving, and courageous in this moment. Fill us with truth and grace. Give us an extra measure of love for our neighbor. We pray for our broken city and our broken nation. In a spirit of repentance, we cry out to you, Lord, in your mercy and grace. Forgive us, pour out your spirit on us, have mercy on us, and do a surprising work in our midst and across our land. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign, that your loving kindness is new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. So as we open your word now, give us ears to hear and build into our lives individually and as a church family a more buoyant faith for the troubled times we live in. In Jesus' name, the name above every name, we pray. Amen. When you hear the word and the name, Mother Teresa, what first comes to your mind? If you're like me, often the words great sacrifice come to mind. Maybe it's selfless love or unwavering faith. What a remarkable woman Mother Teresa was. And what we discovered after her death in 40 letters she had written over 40 years, now published in a book called Come Be My Light, we see the depths of Mother Teresa's struggle. She wrote to her friend, Michael Vanderpeet, these words, Jesus has a special love for you, Michael, but as for me, the silence and emptiness is so great that I look and look and I do not see. I listen and I listen and do not hear. Mother Teresa experienced deep crises of faith in her journey. And she wrestled as you read her letters with the aching sounds, the deafening sounds of God's silence. She agonized in periods of waiting, trying to grasp God's plan for her life that she couldn't understand or see. And I think Mother Teresa's faith is much more like ours than we often admit. We too have our crisis, don't we? Maybe an unfulfilled dream that we are waiting on or a lingering longing of the human heart. We pray, we wait. We agonize as we wait some more. And we are greeted with the deafening sound of silence. At least that's what it seems to us. And many of us here today are grappling with a sense of God's plan for our lives and our world. We struggle with our unanswered prayer. We are at times ready to give up on prayer, are we not? We may be struggling with hardship on our families, our own failures. And I want to suggest to you that a common thread in our faith experience, wherever we are in that journey, is the haunting sounds of God's silence. And in trying to make sense of it all, there is a question I find that both non-believers and believers inevitably ask as reality crashes in on their life. And it's this question. 
God, are you really there? See, we are not alone wrestling with this question. 4,000 years ago, God's covenant people asked this question. They wrestled with their faith in God. And they waited and waited and they waited some more. And they asked God this question, God, are you really there? Are you really there for us as you promised you would be? Why do you seem so distant, so silent? Welcome to the book of Exodus. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn there if you haven't already to this marvelous Old Testament book. And let's frame the beginning of the story this way as the drama opens in Exodus in chapters one and two. We encounter a hopeful promise, a horrific oppression, and a hero who falls. This is the fabric of the story. As Exodus chapter one begins, you will notice these words. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now in the English Bible, because of translation challenges, we often miss the importance of what is grammatically there. The grammatical structure of verse one reminds us by the writer that Exodus is not a new story. Rather, it is a continuing unfolding of a story that began previously, or we might say it's the next chapter in the book. In fact, the very first word in the Hebrew text can be translated and often is not translated because of its English grammatical dynamic. It's the word and. The whole story begins with the word now or and. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know that very few books start with the word and. We don't start a a book with and. So this unusual beginning signals that the writer wants us to first look back before we look ahead. See, our Exodus story begins in the book of Genesis. And God in Genesis promises a glorious future redemption for his covenant people who are very broken. God promises in Genesis 12, 15, 17, all peppered through it, a great blessing to Abraham and his descendants. And woven through this thread is this glorious future home, this glorious land that one day will be theirs. Yet hovering over the story like a dark, ominous cloud As Genesis closes, is a tension. And the tension is this. God, you promised to Abraham, and it's not been fulfilled. In fact, far from it. We are still a long ways from home, God. God, have you forgotten us? Because the historical context is that God's covenant people are living as foreigners in the land of Egypt. Egypt was never God's home for his people. It was never meant to be. But they wait in Egypt for God's promise, and they wait and they wait. In Genesis chapter 50, verses 22 through 26, if you have your Bible, scoop back there, we read these words. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also, Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit, or a better translation, in my opinion, is attend or care for, attend you. 
and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely, notice the emphatic nature, God will surely attend you or visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from there. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. As Genesis concludes, marking the death of Joseph, we hear this loud echo across the text. Excuse me, my emotions are tender today. We hear a loud echo that God is going to make good on the promise he made to Abraham. He's going to take them to a new land. You'll notice the repetition of visit. God is going to come through, Joseph says. God's going to visit you. And notice the idea of visit here or attend to is not like, you know, Uncle Eddie in National Lampoon showing up as a relative, unwanted. The idea is someone with you, someone present with you, someone always there for you, someone attending to every need, someone who has your back. That's the Hebrew idea. Yet as Exodus chapter 1 opens, after some 300 to 400 years have passed, there is both good news and bad news. The good news is that God's covenant people are fruitful and they're flourishing, but the bad news is they're still waiting for their home. They still are in Egypt, far from their promised home. God's word given to Abraham way back seems hollow and distant, and they are saying, God, you said this would happen. You said you'd give us a new land. God, what are you doing? Are you really there? See, I believe one of the greatest challenges of faith It's not only doubting God's existence, but waiting on God's intervention. The book of Proverbs reminds us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. But desire fulfilled is the tree of life. And maybe you find yourself this morning waiting on God. Perhaps it's the healing of a relationship or maybe the healing of a deep emotional wound in your life. A thorn of bitterness that festers. Maybe it's feeling like you something you long for the most, for yourself or someone else, that is always just out of reach. Perhaps it's waiting for a different job or a needed change in your company's mission or culture. Maybe it's waiting for a prodigal son or daughter or spouse to come back home. And you wait. You're in a long holding pattern, seemingly going nowhere, with little traction for hope and God's deafening silence sits right by you. See, what our Exodus story reminds us in those holding patterns of life is that God's apparent absence must not be confused with his apparent silence. See, God's silence does not mean God is absent. No matter how confusing or absurd life seems, God never abandons us. And whatever you're feeling, whatever you're facing in your family or your friendships or your jobs today, it does not mean God is not actively at work. Even when our circumstances go from bad to worse. And wow, do God's covenant people's circumstances take a turn as we continue the story. Beginning in verse 8, we encounter this horrific injustice of oppression. 
It's a new chapter of God's covenant people. Grave injustice, how does this occur? A new king appears on the scene. Now, being a king in Egypt, a pharaoh, was a heady deal. And it goes to his head right away. Because the king in Egypt in that time was as God. His word was God. He was deity. Unimaginable power. And he had big empire ambitions and big dreams. Up to this point, see, God's covenant people in Egypt, the waiting, still far from home, were flourishing as foreigners in a foreign land. But a new king emerges. In the past, God's covenant people had grown from this small Bedouin or desert community, a little clan, now to a growing, burgeoning nation. And Egypt at this time, when you study history of Egyptology, you know that it was the place to be in the world. It was the crest of human civilization. It was the most beautiful place to live, the most brilliant place to live. Even today, if you go to Egypt, you see the residual kind of remnants of 4,000 years of greatness in the pyramids. But you also know that how those pyramids were built was slave labor and oppression. And here in the text, we feel the groaning of that. Not only brilliant achievement, but extraordinary injustice. Pharaoh is freaking out in paranoia. It's God's covenant people flourish even in the midst of oppression. He works them to death, literally. And the text tells us in the story that they still keep multiplying. The hardest circumstances, they still grow because God is with them. No matter how dark, the circumstance. God's presence and blessing is there. Pharaoh orders, he gets desperate, you notice, he, he orders the Hebrew midwives to engage in infanticide, to kill every male child as soon as they are born. And working them to death doesn't work, he's going to kill them. And as their circumstances, their lives turn more and more dim, God's covenant people must have cried out to God in their great hardship. In fact, in Genesis 15, if you look back, you know that Abraham was told this was going to happen. At least they were going to be enslaved in a foreign land. But somehow that didn't register. They were still waiting for their promised home. And they're experiencing extraordinary suffering and slavery and bondage. Recently, I received a phone call from someone who's going through the most excruciating time. I think we spent an hour on the phone. And it was like the black hole of the deepest emotional despair. Deep anxiety, depression, and fear. And if you have been in those places, or you know someone you love who's in a black hole of desperation and hopelessness, you know the deep, deep hurt of the soul. This person is a devoted follower of Jesus and through tears they told me they were clinging to a thin thread of scriptural promise in this dark night and they said to me, those promises are bringing me little comfort. They seem empty. In fact, they seem, quote, like a mirage that mocks me in the night. And at the heart of this person's cry to me over the phone was, what about my family? See, in our hardship and pain and suffering and the heartaches of those we love, the Exodus story speaks from history into our present moment with a really, really important truth. 
And that is God's silence does not mean God is absent or indifferent to our plight. God often works incognito. Hard times do not eclipse, nor do they erase God's promises. Even in our hardships, disappointments, setbacks, and pain, God is at work on us and in us and through us and in this world, moving his ultimate sovereign plan forward. We may not understand all that God is doing, but Paul tells us in Romans 8 that we know all things work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called to his purpose. So in the midst of oppression, darkness, helplessness, hopelessness, amplified by what must have been deafening sounds of God's silence, the writer of Exodus in the very first chapter tucks in front of us patches of God light of hope. Do you see it? Against this dark and foreboding backdrop of oppression and distance and silence, God is indeed working he is working in surprising ways and in, through some very surprising people. In the midst of an Egyptian male-dominated world and culture, it is two Hebrew women. Notice Pharaoh's name is not given. <laughs> Most powerful man on the earth had a name, just like we think of president, you know, president so-and-so. It's just Pharaoh here. Don't miss that. Contrast, Shipra and Pua, <laughs> who are given attention here. They fear God more than a powerful Pharaoh who is playing a dangerous game of playing God. And Shipra and Pua, with undaunted courage, they spare the male Hebrew children, or at least most of them. That's the implication. When we think of the Exodus story, perhaps the first person that comes to mind is who? Moses, right? I mean, pretty big hero. But let me tell you from the very beginning, my vote for the unsung heroines is Shipra and Pua. On a human level, these two amazing women would get my vote. Their unwavering obedience to God in the most horrific moment of infanticide, where Pharaoh's word could have executed him at that moment. Their unwavering obedience to God is more powerful than all that Pharaoh's power can bring. And we are reminded immediately in the book of Exodus how God so powerfully and so often uses people who we tend to overlook or who we think are unlikely or unimportant. It is in the faithfulness of Shipra and Pua's everyday work, don't miss this, in their everyday career, in their medical profession, that God is profoundly at work in shaping history. More often than you and I ever realize, God works in our everyday careers and routines of life for his glory and the furtherance of the common good and his ultimate plan. Little did Betty Howard imagine one day her life and severe grief would cover Life magazine. Betty was an amazing Wheaton College student, bright and vivacious. One thing I really like about her is she married a wrestler named Jim. They fell in love, and after graduation from Wheaton, they felt called in their particular calling to serve as missionaries to Ecuador. And while there, Betty's husband, Jim Elliott, along with four other missionaries, were speared to death by the Aka Indians. 
It was Betty's, hus- Betty hus- Betty's husband's death that catapulted her to national visibility. And if you know the story, you know that she went back to serve the tribe that killed her husband. This past week at the age of 88, Elizabeth Elliot died. What a remarkable person. What a tall tree on the landscape. In my generation, particularly, she was one of our tallest trees. I had the privilege of interacting with her on a couple of occasions, treasured interactions with Elizabeth. One of her most profound books that shaped our life was The Shaping of the Christian Family. Elizabeth Elliot was remarkably gifted as a writer. She went through extraordinary hardship in her life. But what I remember most about Elizabeth is her unwavering devotion to Jesus. Elizabeth would often say, there's nothing worth living for unless it's worth dying for. In her later years, she had a marvelous radio program. It's called Gateway to Joy. And she started every radio program echoing Moses' final words in Deuteronomy 33:27. If you've ever heard it, Elizabeth said this, you are loved with an everlasting love. Then she inserted, that's what the Bible says. And she, she added these words of Moses, Deuteronomy 33. And underneath are the everlasting arms. See, in hardship and loneliness, oppression, suffering, and pain, all of us are tempted to question whether God is there for us. But the story of Exodus from beginning to end, and we will see it through this series, reminds us that God's silence in the midst of our hardship does not mean God's absence or indifference. Because we are loved with an everlasting love and we are held, we are attended to in his everlasting arms. As our story continues, chapter one closes. Pharaoh is so frustrated he can't stand himself. So he has an all-out blitzkrieg of infanticide, deputizing all the Egyptian people to kill any male Hebrew baby they can find. It's against this ominous cloud of full-scale, unthinkable infanticide, chapter two opens, where our Hebrew male baby is miraculously spared. As you hear that story read, you see that God is orchestrating this providentially, but you talk about some heroes in this text. One is Moses' sister. (laughs) You imagine being Moses' mom and putting this little basket. There are all kinds of crocodiles in the Nile. Putting this little basket, planning ahead, knowing the movement of Pharaoh's daughter. This was all planned, but God had to do it. God weaves it all together with faithfulness and his miraculous intervention so that a young Hebrew boy is spared. He is taken into the palace of Egypt. He becomes the Pharaoh daughter's son. But let's not forget that a young Moses through his veins are flowing Hebrew blood. He is trained for several years by his mother, his real biological or his biological mother, before he goes to the palace. But he's also groomed in Egyptian culture. He's given the best education, the best opportunity Egypt has to offer. And we hear this again in the book of Hebrews. The biblical author knows something, and as he unpacks the story, we'll see the brilliance of this literature, the details. He's saying, there's something bigger going on here, readers. I want you to know this right away. 
But he also surprises us that in chapter two, something takes an unexpected twist. Do you see that? Our hero, born and miraculously preserved, is prepared to lead God's people toward home. Now, suddenly, he falls. It's massive failure. At 40 years of age, for goodness sakes. This is not the terrible teens. This is 40 years of age. And I think this says something. It's important for all of us to remember, it's not only the young and those with inexperience that fall greatly, it's also the mature and experienced who fail and fall greatly too. See, no matter how long we have lived or walked with God, apart from God's intervening grace, each one of us is just one step away from disobedience, dishonoring God, and massive failure. Beginning in verse 11, the story continues. We're given this unvarnished account of Moses' massive failure. Moses wrote, at least in my view, most, if not all, of Exodus in this section. Moses understood this well, and it's unvarnished. It's unvarnished. He lays it out there. You'll notice the text, as the story builds, Moses goes out one day. And the fact that it's one day in the Hebrew text is not saying that, oh, it just, just happened one day. He's been planning this. There's been a, something going on here, because we know from Acts chapter 7, that Moses had a plan to deliver his people. We, we know that. So the one day is the idea, oh, it just didn't happen. It's, it's, this is the day that changes his life. That's what it means. And he goes out and he sees an Egyptian, right, mercilessly beating a Hebrew. He's already seen this many times growing up. So he intervenes, takes things into his hands, and he kills the Egyptian. We know from extra-biblical sources that Moses had both brilliance and brawn. He had been trained at the harbor of Egypt, and he was a Navy SEAL. It's the picture. Moses probably wasn't as big as the Incredible Hulk or the Terminator, but if you looked at Moses and he said to you, I'll be back, you're toast. That's the idea. Moses thought everything was cool. He was the man. That's where it is. And he figured no one would see him. But we know in the story what? He's found out. <laughs> He's found out by a couple of Hebrew guys who challenge him when he goes out to try to break up a fight. Suddenly his whole world comes crashing down. Big, strong, tough, brilliant, Harvard-trained, Navy SEAL, military hero, now flees for his life like a rabbit to the Midian Desert, where he spends 40 years. In just a few verses of the story, Moses moves from this privileged position in the palace life to this rugged desert Bedouin life. But let's not forget the wilderness is not just a place of deprivation. It's a place of great delight. And God has more work to do on Moses yet. Moses will be back. But not as some proud and self-sufficient terminator. But as a humble shepherd of God's people. In fact, a reluctant one. The result of Moses' failure is he will spend 40 years in this dry and profoundly spiritually forming wilderness. The wilderness is not always a place we want to go to, friends, but it's often where God transforms us the most. And we'll see later on the story, this may be on a detour from Moses' viewpoint, but it was anything but a dead end from God's viewpoint. 
in the crucible of his own failure, Moses' life, we begin to see that he meant to deliver his people, but the problem was he sought to deliver God's people his way in his own time. I think that speaks to all of us today. In our failures, even when they come at the heels of our best intentions, they can lead us, or our greatest zeal can lead us to a place of deep disillusionment with God. Especially when we take things into our own hands, in our own timing, and it backfires on us. And we ask God, I thought you said I was to do this. And we wonder where God was when everything went south on us. Moses' failure did not mean God was silent. It meant God had much more to do with Moses yet. One of the repeated themes in the Bible, and I encourage you to read it, particularly in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, you just see this over and over and over again. One of the central threads is this. It is God's covenant people playing God. It's a dangerous game to play God. It's not just Pharaoh who's playing God. Moses is playing God too, and do not miss that. All the way through the Old Testament, Genesis, for example, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah are promised the, the, the promised son, Isaac. They wait, they wait, they wait, and finally they say, okay, we're going to help God. And they take things in God's, their own hands. And you know the rest of the story. Thousands of years, we are still dealing with that conflict. See, the danger for all of us is doing God's work in our way, in our time. But let me say it very clearly. That is not doing God's work. No matter how you spin it, partial obedience is disobedience. So let me ask, who is the true hero of this story of Exodus? From the opening of Exodus drama to the end, the chief writer of Exodus, again, who I believe is Moses himself, wants us to get this answer right first and foremost. And listen carefully, it is not Moses. It's not even Shipra and Pua, as awesome as they are. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the focus. Look with me at Exodus chapter two, how it closes. Verses 23 through 25, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. They cried for rescue from slavery and it came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. While things seem to be going bad to worse, while their great hope, Moses, is off in the Midian desert somewhere doing something, the Egyptian oppression and darkness continues and God's covenant people cry out and groan out to God and we encounter the answer that is the focal point of Exodus. Is God really there? Is God really there? And notice the answer is given to us already in chapter two. God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. And the word no here is not a cognitive no, it's a relational intimacy no. Does God see what's going on? Yes. In Moses' time and in your time and my time, your life and his life. God's silence doesn't mean he's absent. Does God care what's going on in our life and our world? Yes, God's silence does not mean he's indifferent or he's twiddling his thumbs. 
Will God do something about the brokenness of my life, our lives, the world? Yes. God's silence doesn't mean he's not working, but his ways and timing are often different than we expect. So from the beginning to the end, we will see in the weeks ahead, the Exodus story points us to a larger story. A good news story of amazing rescue and deliverance. A story of God coming near in the person of Messiah Jesus, our deliverer, who has made possible our exodus from sin and death by taking our place in his atoning death on the cross. It is a story of a promised land that awaits us, a new home that Jesus is preparing for us, a new heavens, a new earth, the promised land we are heading to. The cross of Christ and the empty tomb declare for us that God hears, without a doubt, that God remembers, that God sees and God knows us intimately, and you and I can fully trust him and his ways and his plan for our lives. The gospel is good news. It's so good, such good news in that in our waiting, God's apparent silence does not mean he's absent, for God has come near in Jesus. In our hardships, God's apparent silence doesn't mean he's indifferent, for God entered our suffering and hardship, and our God has wounds. Well, the heartfelt, transparent words of Mother Teresa resonate with each one of us, don't they? We may feel at times in our journey of faith that God is so distant, but the words of Holy Scripture and the promise of God remind us with confidence that no matter the circumstances we face, God is there and he is not silent. So friends, let's stay hopeful and let's be faithful. Let's pray. Father, we recognize our limited understanding or vision, but grant to us a hopeful confidence in you and your word. No matter what circumstances we are facing, no matter the difficulty of the world, the brokenness of our lives, Lord, you are working for your glory. In Jesus' name.